You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Jay Scott to talk all things related to real estate, from getting started, buying your first rentals, flips, and everything in between. Jay is a successful entrepreneur, real estate investor with over 400 flips, an author of four real estate books, and co-host of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. As you'll hear throughout this episode, Jay has done a lot of things and is a wealth of information. I personally enjoy his podcast and all of his books, and I'm honored every time I get a chance to talk with him. I hope you guys enjoy this great conversation with Jay Scott. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome to today's show. With me today, I have Jay Scott. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks, Robert. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned in the intro, you have a very diverse background with a lot of experience that I'm excited to talk about today. We'll probably have to have you on the show at least one more time, if not more, to cover it all. But let's start today by you telling us a bit more about your background. How did you know you were meant to be an entrepreneur? And how did you ultimately get into real estate? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not really sure. It was a kind of a winding path. I went to school for electrical engineering. So I was an engineer and I did the corporate thing for a long time. Got out of school, got a job, got another job, got another job. I ended up at Microsoft out in, uh, in Silicon Valley for a long time. So that's where I spent most of my career. I was an engineer. I got my MBA. So I kind of went the, uh, the business route. But it was always working for big companies. Then back in 2006, I guess it was, I met my future wife. She also was in the tech world. And when we decided to get married in 2008, we realized that she was traveling three weeks a month. I was traveling two and a half weeks a month. Basically, we were just living lives that just didn't make sense when we were going to get married and start a family. So we both like, we sat down when we decided to get married and we said, what are we going to do? Because we can't keep doing this corporate thing, traveling all the time, working 80 hours a week. And we decided, hey, I have a business background. She's got a marketing sales background, corporate communications background. It's a good mix. Between us, we can figure out like this business thing. I had run a business for Microsoft, a couple of businesses for Microsoft. She had run a big departments at eBay. So we knew we could, or we thought we could be successful doing the business thing. So 2008, right around the time of the crash, we said, okay, we're getting ready to get married. We're just going to quit our jobs. We're going to move from California back to the East Coast, closer to our families, and we're going to start a business or two businesses or five businesses. Like I always wanted to be a serial entrepreneur. For some reason, that always seemed kind of cool to me. And, but we had no idea what those businesses were going to be. So summer of 2008, we had quit our jobs. We moved back to Atlanta, just kind of picked Atlanta randomly. And it was the probably one of the hardest hit areas in the country for real estate, probably during the worst part of the downturn. We're sitting on the couch over the summer, just watching TV, waiting for our, our wedding to come up because we had decided we weren't going to do anything for the summer. We're just going to take the summer off, relax, and then figure out what we wanted to do. And my wife's watching HGTV. And back then, I mean, you turn on HGTV, there's a flip show on. And so there's a flip show on TV. She's watching. She said, we should flip a house. And I honestly, I thought she was joking. I had no contractor skills whatsoever. We had literally just purchased our first house ever like three months earlier. I am not the handyman type, but she was serious. She's like, let's flip a house. It's just something to do. And 
she's a design person. And so I knew she probably just wanted to do the interior design of a house. I said, okay, let's do it. Spent a couple months just kind of figuring out what flipping houses meant. Learn the the financial side, learn the numbers, learn how to analyze deals. We looked at maybe a hundred properties, and then August of two thousand eight, literally on our wedding day, we closed on our first deal. Now we had found after looking at about a hundred properties and not finding anything, my wife finally said, "Look, we just need to buy something because if we don't just buy something, we'll probably never take that leap." So I said, "Okay, next house we look at, we're going to buy." And we actually looked at three houses the day we decided to do that. And we put all three under contract. And we said, we're going to figure out which one of these we want. We had inspection contingency in each of them. So we could have backed out. At the end of the day, we said, let's just buy all three of them. And so we closed on the first one on our wedding day. We closed on the second one a week later. We closed on the third one about two weeks after that. And we were basically doing our first three flips simultaneously like with no experience, no real estate background. No plan to do this. Like, literally, this was just serendipitous. We just sort of fell into it. Luckily, we bought the second and third right after the first because the first didn't go well. And had we not bought the second and third right at that time, we probably never would have done the second deal. But the second deal went well. The third deal went well. We decided to buy another one and another one and another one. Before we knew it, that kind of was our business. That's, that's what we decided we wanted to be doing. And here we are 12 years later. We've probably done about 400, 450 of those, and most of them have gone well. And somehow we're now real estate investors. So, was this right before the crash? Was this during the crash? Was it right after? We were very fortunate with our timing. This was not the worst part of the crash, but parts of Atlanta got hit tremendously hard. I mean, there were areas that were seeing drops of 50, 60%. At this point, we were probably 70 or 80% towards the worst of it. So prices had dropped tremendously. They still had a little way to go and then they kind of flattened out at the bottom for a while. But the worst of it was already passed. And so had we done this literally 6 or 12 months earlier, we probably would have lost our shirts. So we were very fortunate with the timing. Again, we had no idea what we were doing. But the fact that prices were tremendously depressed, basically all of our competition had gone out of business. Nobody was flipping houses anymore. There were very few renovated houses back on the market. So for the few buyers that were out there that were actually looking for houses, we had basically the only inventory they, they were interested in. So I look back and it, it was kind of weird. I mean, there were very, very few buyers, but those buyers had essentially no choices for, for decent housing except for our properties. So yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty bad time in real estate. So if we were about 70, 80% through that crash, why did you have to look at so many deals just to find three? Because we had analysis paralysis. We were in the same position that 99%, making that number up 99%, but a vast majority of investors find themselves in where they study and they read and they talk to people and they want to pull the trigger, but they're just scared to do it because there's always the, well, do I really know the numbers? And do I really understand what I'm getting into? And what am I missing? And what's the hidden, what's the surprise that I'm going to come upon? So I was just scared to take that leap. And luckily, my wife looked at me and said, look, we're passing up all these deals. The numbers always seem to work, but you're too conservative. You don't want to do any of these. We just need to buy one. And worst case, we lose some money and we learn from it. And maybe we don't ever do it again, but right, we're never going to buy a property. So literally, uh, there was we realized after those first couple properties was 
exactly what you said. There were so many deals out there back then. I mean, there were so many REOs, which are basically bank-owned foreclosures that are sold right off the MLS. I mean, I joke today that literally I could open up the MLS, I could take a dart and throw it and whatever property it hit was probably going to be a great deal. But it took us actually buying that first and second and third property before we realized how fortunate we were and what a great opportunity we had. Yeah, and I wanted to ask that question because it wasn't a matter of deals not being available. I mean, it sounds like there was a lot of deals. It was paralysis by analysis, which I think a lot of investors get stuck in. Yep, absolutely. And so fortunately, I mean, I, I give my wife all the credit in the world. She literally said that we're buying the next one we look at. And we did. And so that kind of got the ball rolling. It's interesting. My background is sort of similar. I haven't done 400 deals yet by any means, but I was in a similar boat. I, I only wanted to buy a multifamily rental. That was the only thing I was going to be buy. I was not willing to buy any single family. But I got into a paralysis by analysis and I was we came across good deals. My business partner and I, we came across good deals and I just wouldn't pull the trigger. And then one day I came across a single family property and I said, we're buying it. You know, The numbers were good, but I was like, we're buying it because if we don't, we're never going to take the leap and we're never going to get started ever since then. you know, I mean, we've gotten over that hurdle. Yeah. I often talk about people ask me, what's the secret to real estate? And I always tell people there are no secrets in real estate. But there's one truism that if I wanted to, to pretend like there was a secret in real estate, this is what I would say it is. And it, it's probably the most powerful thing out there for anybody that hasn't done that first deal yet. I talk about the fact that I meet literally thousands of people every year who are looking to get into real estate or who are in real estate. And what I found is those thousands of people always fall into one of two categories. Most of them have done no deals, zero deals. The rest of them have done three, five, 10, 50 deals. The one type of person I rarely ever, 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 ever see is that person that's done one deal. Because in this business, you get that first deal and your whole mindset shifts. You have context for what you're doing. You have an understanding that couldn't be there before you got that first deal done. You can read all the books you want. You can talk to all the people, go to all the conferences you want to go to. But until you do that first deal, there's something that, that's missing that just doesn't click into place, that clicks into place when you get that first deal. And once that happens, that second deal is so much easier. And the third deal is so much easier. And the fifth and the 10th and the 50th deals are so much easier. And so what I tell people is, if you can get to that first deal, if you don't give up before that first deal, you're not going to stop at one deal. You're going to do two or three or five or 50 or 100 deals. And so I just reassure people that it gets easier because everybody thinks if it's this hard to get one deal, I'm, just, I, I'm not going to want to get the second or the third. It's not the way it is. You get that first deal and everything starts to snowball after that. I really, I couldn't agree more. It really is so true. So how many flips did you do or what did your portfolio look like when you were comfortable to quit your job? And was there a tipping point that made it clear that you were like, aha, you know, I know this is the time. And how about for Carol, your wife? Was it the same time or when did that happen? Yeah. So we quit our jobs before we ever did our first flip. Again, we were looking, we we wanted to start a business. So we never even considered real estate until that's not true. We considered real estate, but we were looking at buy and hold real estate. We were thinking about buying multifamily just for long-term cash flow. We didn't consider active real estate strategies until literally the day she was sitting on the, the couch after we had quit our jobs, waiting to figure out what our next step was going to be and said, hey, let's flip a house. So for us, like we had already taken that leap. It was just a question of where we landed. And just the fact that we landed in real estate, it was just, it was blind luck. And so the bigger question for us or for me that when I think back is, 
when did I decide that real estate was going to be that thing that we were going to dedicate our time to now that we were out of our job? Because again, we were thinking about starting a business and I didn't know what kind of business it was going to be. I was thinking about buying business, a business or starting a business or buying a franchise. I didn't know. And, but at some point, and I don't know exactly when it happened, at some point, my wife and I just kind of looked up and said, okay, we're real estate investors now. This is that business that we were talking about we would eventually start. And I don't think we ever made that conscious decision that we were going to do real estate. It just kind of sort of happened. The first year, I think we did 14 deals. And so I think we were just kind of too busy to, to look up and say, hey, what are we doing? And do we really want to be doing this? And we were just, <laughs> we were so busy actually doing it. That we didn't ask we didn't ask ourselves that question until years later. So fast forward to today, what does your current real estate portfolio look like? I know you've done, like you said, over four hundred or four hundred fifty flips, but does your portfolio consist of any any other types of real estate investments, any rentals or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. So unfortunately, we didn't realize it until a few years in, but rentals are the opportunity that we really missed in two thousand eight, nine, and ten. I mean. We started buying rentals. I think we bought our first rental in 2009, and we probably bought 30 or 40 or 50 rentals in the first five years that we were investing. We sold every one of them because I hated property management. And it didn't occur to me until years later that, hey, I don't need to be doing my own property management. But we'd buy a rental, we'd get a tenant in there, everything would be fine. And then one day something would happen where the tenant would just annoy me or there'd be some issue. And I'd just be like, I don't feel like dealing with this anymore. And we'd sell our whole portfolio. And I'd go out and buy three or four more rentals. And then one day I'd get annoyed and I'd just sell all three of them. And it, this happened over and over and over again. And then it was probably 2013 or 14 that, again, my wife said to me, why are we selling all these properties? And she was saying it the whole time. She was like, we shouldn't be selling these. But she finally like, put her foot down and said, we can't sell any more properties. And she was right. I mean, we missed an amazing opportunity. We had bought some properties back in 2009 to 13 that today would have tripled or quadrupled in value that we'd be making literally 50, 60% cash on cash returns because they were so cheap back then, but I wasn't smart enough to hold on to them. So 2014, we started collecting rentals again. We started buying some small multifamily. A couple of years ago, we started buying some mid-sized multifamily. So we built a pretty big portfolio. We sold a decent amount of that back in 2018. This was more a planned thing. It wasn't just me being annoyed and saying, I don't want to hold these anymore. The market was really strong in the, the areas where we're investing. I'm one of those people that, yeah, I, I like passive income, but I also know that I understand market cycles and I saw an opportunity to, to take, even if there was going to be a tax hit with it, to take a big, a big capital gain on our portfolio. So 2018 into 2019, we sold about 50% of our, our units and we're still holding some, some mid-sized multifamily. We're still holding some single family. We are looking for some large multifamily to syndicate. So we're still doing buy and hold deals, but we slowed down in, in 2018. That's really interesting to hear given that you, you, know, you wrote the book on recession-proof real estate investing. So it's interesting to hear that. I spent a lot of time in 2018 and 19 really thinking about the economy. Again, it's a topic that I've always been interested in. Economics has always been a passion of mine, but I'd never really sat down and thought about how economic cycles impact us as real estate investors. In 2018, I really sat down and I, I spent some time thinking about what are the strategies? Because anybody that's familiar with economic cycles knows that there are downturns, there are upturns, then there are downturns, then there are upturns. The cycle is, is always going to continue. I can't tell you when the next recession is going to occur. I can't tell you how bad it's going to be. 
But if history is an indicator and history is an indicator, we know that the next one's going to come at some point. And so in 2018, I started thinking about what do I want to be doing when the next downturn comes? How do I want to protect myself? How do I want to protect my investments? How do I want to modify my strategies and my tactics to ensure that when the next downturn comes, even if it's not nearly as bad as 2008, what can I do to ensure that I'm still making a profit, that I'm minimizing my risk? And so one of the things I decided to do back again around 2018 was to take those units that were in my portfolio that were either underperforming, that weren't generating the returns I thought they would continue to to generate. And more importantly, in those areas where I thought if there's a downturn, these areas are more susceptible to being hit harder than average. There are certain areas that are likely to get hit harder than average, and maybe I don't want to be holding certain types of units in those areas. So I I made a conscious decision to think about what I wanted to be doing, what I didn't want to be doing, and and then I modified my, uh, my portfolio to match my thoughts. Where were these properties located, both the ones you sold and then just your overall portfolio? What areas of the country were you investing in? So we were we owned a lot in Atlanta. We owned a lot in a city about an hour and a half south of Atlanta called Columbus, Georgia. We owned uh, several multifamily properties in Columbus, Georgia. We owned a bunch of single-family rentals in Maryland, and we owned a couple things in upstate New York. So we were kind of up and down the, the East Coast, uh, just the areas that we knew well. So we we lived in Atlanta for a long time, so we knew the Atlanta area and the suburbs. We, I grew up in Maryland, and then we moved to Maryland, so I knew that area well. We had family in upstate New York, so we knew that area well. We had some friends down in Columbus, Georgia, so we knew that area well. So basically, we were investing in the areas that we knew well and that we had people that could help us manage our properties. With the talk about where you think we are in the real estate cycle, I think you mentioning that you're selling some off in 2018, I think that gives a good indication where you think we might be, but how does that impact your flipping? Are you still flipping to this day? Yes, I am. And so, Flipping is one of those strategies that works in most parts of the market cycle. It doesn't work during a recession. During a recession, when property values are dropping, you don't want to be flipping houses. Right now, I believe we're probably around the top of the market. I feel like we've been at the top of the market. When I say I feel like the the data indicates we've probably been at the top of the market for 6 to 12 months, we could bounce around the top of the market for another 6 to 12 or 24 or 36 months. Who knows how long? Again, I'm, I'm, I can't predict when it's going to happen. But I don't think that we're going to see a tremendous increase in values from here for a whole lot of reasons. But flipping still works. But I've modified... The, the strategy of flipping works, but the tactics that I've implemented have changed. So I've modified a number of my tactics. First of all, in a downturn, typically at the beginning of a downturn, the first parts of the market that start to soften and lose value are those parts of the real estate market that are well above or well below median house price. So let's say you live in an area where the median house price is $400,000. Houses that are well above that $400,000 price point or well below that $400,000 price point, when the market starts to turn, those are the parts of the market that are going to soften first. That's where the demand is going to be reduced first. So if I'm flipping and I flip in several markets, but let's say I'm flipping in a market where the average house price is around $300,000, I want my flips, my resale value for my flips to be somewhere in the $300,000 range. I'm no longer flipping high-end properties in those markets because again, when the market turns, that's what's going to soften first. And I'm no longer flipping houses that are well below the median house price in those markets either. So that's the first thing. Number two, 
I'm not concerned that the market's going to crash in the next month or two or three or four. It might. It could definitely go down in the next month or two or three or four. But I'm not overly concerned that we're going to see a major 10, 20, 30% crash overnight. Again, I don't know for certain, but I'm willing to bet some money on that. I'm not as confident that we're not going to see a downturn and maybe a major downturn in six or 12 or 18 months. So given that, I'm trying to keep my projects short. So I'm no longer doing those projects that are going to take me 12 months from the day I purchased to the day I sell. I'm no longer doing ground up construction, which can take 18 months. I'm no longer doing big additions, which could take six months just to get permits. I'm focused on deals that are going to go quick. I'm focused on those deals that I can be in, a, in and out of in two, three, four months. That way, even if the market starts to turn, we're probably not going to hit the worst part of the downturn before I'm ready to get out of those properties. So that's the second thing I'm doing. I'm, I'm keeping my projects quick. Third thing I'm doing is I think we're really fortunate. The one thing we're really fortunate about with 2008 is it was a great barometer for how bad things will realistically ever get. I'm not going to say it'll never be worse. We've seen worse downturns than 2008. Back in the 1930s, we saw a worse downturn. I'm sure at some point in the future, again, history is the best predictor of, of the future. And at some point, there's going to be a big downturn, another depression like the 1930s, maybe worse. But historically speaking, 2008 was much worse than what we can expect to see in the next downturn or the one after that. So 2008 is a great barometer of kind of the worst case scenario. In fact, 2008 is probably a little worse than, than what's realistically the worst case scenario. So what I like to tell people is, take a look in your area, take a look at the data in your area and see exactly what happened in 2008. Assume that that's now going to be your worst case scenario. And don't do any deals that you're not comfortable with that being your worst case scenario. So to put actual numbers behind that, we do a lot of flips or we were doing a lot of flips in Maryland. So I, I grew up in Baltimore. We moved back there a few years ago. We just moved from there about eight months ago. We still do a bunch of flips in Baltimore and or the Baltimore suburbs. And back in 2008, we saw a market drop of about 13 or 14% in the areas where I was flipping houses. And so I knew that, again, assuming history is the good predictor of the future, my worst case scenario in that area during the next downturn is probably a drop of 13 or 14%. And it probably won't even be that bad, but that's kind of the worst case scenario. So I knew that if I was going into flips with margin, cash on cash margin, whatever you want to call it, of at least 13 or 14%, we could see a 2008 type scenario, and I'm still not going to lose money on those properties. I'll break even. So my target when I'm flipping in those areas is to get at least 13 or 14% cash on cash return on those deals or margin on, on those deals to keep from having any tremendous risk. Now, I also did a lot of flips in Atlanta. Back in certain parts of Atlanta, especially where I was flipping back in 2008, 9, 10, market dropped 40, 50, in some places, 60%. So I know that assuming that the underlying foundations of, of the economy in Atlanta haven't changed, assuming the economy is basically the same as it was back in 2008, probably my worst case scenario in, in the next downturn is a 40, 50, 60% drop in Atlanta. For that reason, I'm not doing many flips in Atlanta anymore because I can't absorb or I won't absorb that type of loss or, or, or subject myself to that, that type of risk. So I'm starting to do a lot more flips in, in Maryland. I'm starting to do a lot fewer flips in Atlanta. And so what I tell people is 2008 was a great opportunity to see what the worst case scenario is in whatever area you're in, look at the data, Find out if you're a buy and hold investor, see what the market did with respect to buy and hold. Did market rents drop? Did occupancy drop? What did happen with cap rates? 
Because again, that's likely to be your worst case scenario in that particular area during the next downturn. If a deal that you're considering can absorb that type of downturn, then do the deal. If it can't, don't do the deal. So that's, that's again, I, I was really long-winded, but I just like to reiterate, look at your data in your market from 2008 and consider that to be your worst case scenario and decide, am I willing to accept that risk on my next deal or not? I think that's really good advice. I don't hear a lot of people talking about that strategy of going back to look at 2008 and using that as a baseline for worst case scenario. I think that's a really good idea. I think a lot of people should should start doing that. Now, we've been talking a lot about flipping and we've been assuming that the audience listening knows what flipping is. But for someone who doesn't, what exactly is the strategy of, of flipping? What does it mean to flip a house? Yeah. So different people use the term differently, but generally speaking, you're buying a distressed property, a property that is not necessarily in good condition, purchasing it, you're renovating it, and then you're reselling it to a retail homeowner. So somebody that's moving in with their family. And presumably because you're buying it distressed, you're buying it below market value. And the renovations you put in, if you choose the right renovations and you do them well, you can improve or you can increase the value of the property to the point that when you resell it at market value to a retail buyer, there is a profit to be made. There's a spread. And that spread is your profit on the deal. I think that house flipping is probably one of the most popular real estate strategies, partly because of all the popular TV shows on HGTV, like you mentioned before, and partly just due to the large returns that investors can receive and usually pretty quick. I think the shows and online gurus tend to make it seem like flipping is, is made for everyone. But who do you think the strategy is actually good for? And who should probably try to avoid it? Yeah. So first of all, I would say nobody should be taking those shows seriously. Back in 2000, I think it was 14, my wife and I actually did a pilot for an HGTV show. It's out there on YouTube. If anybody is a really good investigator, can probably dig it up. And it was very eye-opening. Literally, they asked us to lie about numbers. Literally, they asked us to make up stories and scenarios. And it was most of it was just acting. They had us pretend that I bought a house without my wife's knowledge, which is something I'd never do. They had us pretend that we made a big mistake and lost tens of thousands of dollars on a mistake we made, which is a mistake we'd never make. And again, really eye-opening. And, and they offered us a show and we refused because we just we weren't willing to put ourselves... Essentially, the contract that they have you sign says almost flat out, we can make you look bad and we can destroy your reputation. We can give you any persona we want and you have to deal with it. And we just weren't willing to compromise our reputation by doing a show like that. But just the process was very eye-opening. And so one of the biggest things I learned was, don't trust the numbers. Because literally, they had us on camera and we were talking about a deal for the pilot. And we said, we bought it for this amount. We put this much in it. We sold it for this much. And this was our profit. And the producer looked at us and said, no, nobody's going to be interested in those numbers. You need to say you bought it for this. You put this much in. You sold it for this and your profit was this. And literally telling us what numbers we should spit out. After that, we went back and we actually looked at some of the deals because there were some house flipping shows that were done in the areas where we lived. And we found a couple houses that had been flipped on these shows. And we looked at the numbers and we compared them to what they did on the show. It was all lies. So first thing I would say, anybody that watches those shows, it's entertainment. Don't trust the numbers. Don't trust the stories. Don't trust anything. If, it's, if you enjoy the entertainment, great, but it's not real life. In terms of who flipping is for and who flipping is not for, flipping is a great 
strategy for somebody that has the time, has the energy, has the money, and has the fortitude to deal with active real estate investing. Active real estate investing is hard. It's tiresome. It's frustrating. It's stressful. A lot of things can go wrong. It's a grind. Honestly, I don't enjoy real estate. And people people are surprised when I say that. But pretty much from the day I started flipping houses, I hated it. And it's part of the reason why I've always been big on focusing on building my business and hiring people to manage the day-to-day because I really don't like it. But if you're one of those people that that you don't mind getting your hands dirty, you don't mind working really hard, you've got the cash, you're willing to study, you're willing to persevere, you're willing to be frustrated, flipping houses is a great way to make money. Now, that said, flipping houses is a horrible tax avoidance strategy. You're going to pay more taxes flipping houses than you will at a W-2 job. Basically, taxes for flipping is the same as a regular nine-to-five job, plus you're going to pay self-employment tax as well. So don't look at it as real estate. It's a great tax shelter. Flipping houses is not a great tax shelter, but it is a great way to generate piles of cash. And what I tell people is, if you're going to flip houses, you have to have a secondary strategy. That may be your active strategy. That's the way you're generating these piles of cash. But then you need something to do with those piles of cash. You need to put it someplace where it's going to generate passive returns for you. And so that's why I tell people, if you're going to flip houses, make sure you have a secondary strategy as well. Maybe it's uh, buy and hold real estate. Maybe it's lending. Maybe it's buying notes. Maybe it's investing in even the stock market or into a business or something. You have to have a passive strategy that goes along with it. Because I see too many people that they get into flipping, they start doing a lot of flips, They'll, they're doing 10 or 20 flips a year, they're making large piles of cash, and they're just blowing it on toys. They're blowing it on vacations, they're blowing it on cars, they're blowing it on bikes, whatever it is that, that they love. And at the end of the day, they don't realize, they think they, they think they have a business flipping houses, but at the end of the day, it's really just a job. And the minute you stop doing it, the income stops. So if you don't mind having a stressful job that is capital intensive and be frustrating and requires really hard work. Flipping's great. (laughs) I want to go back to what you were saying about the show first. I was going to say the exact same thing about finding the numbers. And I'm kind of surprised that they would ask you to lie because real estate information is public record. Anybody can go and find those that data more or less and find out the truth. So I'm kind of surprised by that. But like you said, it is it is reality TV in a sense and it, it is just entertainment. So, you know, I'm not overly surprised, but I do have to say that I do enjoy the show as entertainment, but I'm glad that the internet has become more mainstream because I think before the internet was really around, people would take those TV shows and try and learn from them as an educational source and then try and go replicate that. Whereas now we have the internet, we have social media, we have everything that we could get all the really good information to go learn. So I'm glad that that came around. Here's the interesting thing for anybody that thinks the numbers might be real. You can prove that the numbers are not real just by virtue of the fact that on most of these shows, they talk about, and I'll use round numbers. I bought the property for 100000 I put 50000 into it. I sold it for two hundred and fifty. I made a $100,000 profit. And on the surface, yeah, that, that seems right. 250 minus the 100 you put into it and the, or the 100 you bought it for and the 50 you put into it equals 100. But even that is too simplistic. You're ignoring your closing costs when you purchase. You're ignoring your, your loan costs and your interest payments. You're ignoring your taxes and your utilities. You're ignoring your commissions that you have to pay to the realtor on the back end. You're ignoring your closing costs on the back end. Maybe you have transfer taxes. Maybe you have all, all these other costs that can literally eat up 10, 15, 20% of the sale price. So even in a best case scenario, the numbers that they portray on those shows are ignoring all these fixed costs, all these holding costs and closing costs that contribute to a reduced profit on your deal. 
and they never talk about those. So even in the best case scenario, they're fudging the numbers by ignoring those holding costs. And those are very real costs that when you're flipping a house that you really need to take into consideration. Absolutely. And to your point about it being such an active strategy, I think that's such a good point because I think a lot of people get into real estate because they want more passive income or or tax preferable income, if you will. And then they get into flipping and realize that that's neither the case for for flipping. It's it's very active. It's like I've heard it called buying another job. So it's not really very passive. It's really building a business rather than, you know, investing, if you will. I've heard people that have said, well, I'm doing a flip and it's taking me like nine months. I might as well just wait 12 months and then I get long-term capital gains. And I have to explain, first of all, it's not long-term capital gains if you hold it for over 12 months. It's not short-term capital gains if you hold it for less than 12 months. Flipping is literally ordinary income. And ordinary income is that thing that you generate from a job. And it could be you can have a consulting business, you can have a nine to five job, your tax burden is exactly the same. It's based on your tax bracket and and your marginal tax rate. And again, flipping is actually worse than having a job because they consider the the IRS considers you self-employed. So not only do you pay taxes based on that marginal tax bracket, your tax rate, but you also have to pay self-employment taxes as well, which can be another six, 10, 12%. Yeah, you're paying all your employer side of the taxes that most people don't really think of a lot of times when they get their paycheck. Exactly. For someone who's new to investing, but they decide that they're okay with the active part of flipping and they want to give it a try, what are the best ways for them to find properties to buy? So that changes. And it's at different points, again, in the market cycle, there are going to be different different strategies that work, different strategies that don't work or don't work as well. So just to give some context, back in 2008, when I started, like I said, there were so many bank-owned foreclosures, these, these properties that were being sold right off the MLS, that I could just call up a real estate agent and say, find me a deal on the MLS, and they could find me 20 deals in the next two hours. And that strategy, just buying right off the MLS, worked for two, three, four years. Then that strategy stopped working. And so we started doing a strategy called short sales, where basically people who were in financial distress couldn't pay their mortgage. They negotiated with their bank to, to sell their property for less than what they owed on the, on the property, less than what they owed on their mortgage. And so we were going in and we were buying these properties for less than what the homeowners owed on their mortgage. And that's called a short sale. So we were doing a lot of those 2011, 2012. 2012 and 2013, we started finding a lot of deals on the courthouse steps. So basically foreclosures before they were taken back by the bank. So literally you go out and lenders, banks are auctioning off these properties in real time. You have to come with cash and you're paying cash to buy these properties. You don't get a chance to look at them. You don't get a chance to pull title necessarily. And and so we were doing that for a while. And then we started doing direct mail. Basically, we stopped finding these publicly listed deals, these deals that anybody could find by going on the MLS or going down to the courthouse. So we had to start finding deals because things started getting tougher. We had to start finding what are called off-market deals. Off-market deals is basically where you go and you try and contact potential sellers yourself. And you can do that in a number of ways. You can knock on their door, you can pick up the phone and call them, you can send letters. You can put out what are called bandit signs, which are just those we buy houses signs. I know people that that put up billboards. I know people that do radio advertising. But basically, you're trying to communicate directly with potential sellers that haven't yet decided to sell. And you're trying to convince them, hey, maybe now's a good time to sell. Give me a call if you're interested. So that way, you're not competing with 10 or 20 or 100 other people. 
you're basically competing with that homeowner to convince them to sell at a price that works for you. So between 2014 and, and now, essentially, it's these off-market deals that have been the best way to find property because it's the only way that you're not competing with all the other real estate investors out there. And these days, there are so many other investors out there. All it takes is one investor who's willing to pay too much money for a property and everybody else loses out. And these days, there's always going to be that one investor. There's probably going to be 50 investors that are willing to overpay for a property. So going after properties that are publicly listed just isn't a good way to find deals. What I'm recommending people do is see what's working for other investors in your area. In some areas, direct mail works great. And that's essentially where you send letters to, to prospective sellers. In certain areas, certain types of letters work better. So for example, in many of the areas where we send direct mail, I'm a big fan of targeting what are called absentee landlords. And basically, these are landlords, people that own rental properties, but don't live in the same state where they own rental properties. Typically, not typically, but at least in a lot of cases, that's a sign that they bought the property, they turned it into a rental, maybe they lived there and then couldn't sell it or didn't want to sell it, so they held onto it as a rental. Maybe they were in the military and they bought a property. Every, every time they were stationed at a new location, they buy a property that's pretty common in the military. But basically, people that buy these one-off houses don't really have a plan for them. And then it's not uncommon that two, three, five, ten 10 years down the road, they're like, why am I doing this? Every time they have to have a turnover or they have a vacancy and they have to travel to, to fix up the place, they get frustrated. If you can catch one of those landlords when they're dealing with a frustrating situation, we're targeting these out-of-state landlords. Secondarily, uh, we're still doing some targeting of people that are in what are called what's called pre-foreclosure. So maybe they're 30 days late on their mortgage payment or 60 days late or 90 days late on the mortgage payment. So they're somewhat distressed, they're having trouble paying their mortgage. And oftentimes these people, if you can offer them a good solution for how to get out from under their mortgage without having to go through bankruptcy or foreclosure or short sale, a lot of times they want to sell their house and they'll give you a good deal on their on their house. So there are a lot of ways that you can search for off-market properties. Again, direct mail is a great one. Knocking on doors. I know people that literally will just knock on doors. Instead of sending a letter, they want to save the cost of the stamp. So, so they don't want to spend any money on their marketing. They'll literally just go knock on the door or they'll get a list of phone numbers and they'll, do, they'll text or they'll send ringless voicemail or they'll pick up the phone and call. A lot of ways to, to hit sellers these days, a lot of ways that you can use technology to hit sellers these days. And if you are persistent enough and you're not scared to get out there and really try and sell and, and do the cold calling, you can make a lot of money doing it. Yeah, I personally could not go door to door. I could do some of the other strategies, but I could not do the door to door stuff. I'm the same way. So let's assume that somebody has found a good property. They're walking it. They're trying to decide if they want to purchase it for a flip. What are some of the major red flags that they need to watch out for? And you know, I understand that this is going to vary drastically from property to property, but just in general, what are some of the red flags that you look for? Yeah. So I like to tell people that most things on a flip have a pretty limited, a well-defined range of how much they're going to cost. There are things that can be expensive. You have to replace a roof. A roof can be five dollars or $10,000 on a typical house. That's not cheap. But you know that your upper limit is probably going to be somewhere in the $10,000 range for, for a typical single family house. Likewise, with if you have to replace siding or if you have to replace cabinets or you have to replace countertops or flooring or some sheetrock, those sorts of things. All of those things have well-defined ranges. And if you mess up on one of those things, you're going to lose X number of dollars where X is pretty well-defined. The places that I tell people to focus are those places where 
that X, that the cost to fix something isn't well-defined, where the cost to fix something could potentially be more than the value of the house. And those areas are places like foundation repair. I've seen houses where literally it costs less to knock a house down and rebuild than it would be to fix a foundation problem if a foundation problem is bad enough. Now, typically it's not that bad, but that's, that's a potential situation. Foundations can cost thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. So foundation's the first area. Second is environmental issues. So a good example is a septic system. A lot of people buy houses in areas where they're not on public sewer systems. They have what are called septic, which means you have basically a tank out in your in your backyard where all your sewage goes and kind of seeps through the tank and it kind of cleans it up and then it sends the rest into the into the ground. Septic systems can fail. And if a septic system fails, there's always the possibility that you can't, because of uh, environmental problems, you can't fix it. And so there are houses out there that have had septic systems that fail. Basically, if you can't get public sewer and you can't replace the septic system, there's no sewage removal from the house and that house is no longer livable. Basically, the house value has gone to zero. So I tell people, look for environmental problems. Next, mold and termites. Those are two other big things that the cost to remediate can potentially be much, much more than anything else in the house. I've seen houses with mold issues. And typically, if it has a mold issue this bad, you're going you're gonna to see some signs of it. But I've seen houses that have had mold issues that have cost tens of thousands of dollars to remediate. I've seen houses that you walk in and they seem absolutely fine. I saw a house back in probably 2012 or 13. It was a bank-owned foreclosure. We went, house looked great. We made an offer on the house. We came back to do a quick inspection just to make sure we didn't miss anything. And I noticed that a piece of baseboard in the kitchen was really soft. Like I, I take a key and I'll actually hit the key on different pieces of wood around the house just to make sure all the wood is pretty solid. And the key went right through the wood. And I realized, oh, there's a problem there. And I, I realized, oh, this is termites. So I started walking around the house with the key and I realized this house had been destroyed by termites. And a lot of times with termites, Inside the house, you don't see a lot of evidence if it's in the framing or it's behind the walls. Turns out this house literally needed to be taken down to the studs and a lot of the framing needed to be redone. It was probably $50,000 worth of work just to remediate the termite damage that most people wouldn't have found. So it's these sorts of things. Again, it's the foundation, environmental, mold, termites. Those are the four big things that I tell people to look out for because those are the things that there's no bounded cost necessarily and can really make the difference between not just losing money, but losing your shirt on the deal. Once somebody has a good deal with good bones, a good property, and it's set up to be a good success, how do they not blow it in terms of their renovation and upgrades? How does somebody know or how should somebody think about which upgrades to make versus which ones not to make? Like, Which upgrade options actually provide the biggest bang for the buck? Real estate investing flipping is much like any other business. You're going to have competitors out there. And your job is to provide a product that is better than the competitor for a price that's no higher than the competitor. And it's no different in flipping houses. You want to provide a product, a house that is similar, maybe a little bit better than your competition, but not priced higher. So if you think about, it, let's say you're, you're selling watches and the, the average price of a watch is $200. Yeah, you can go out there and you can try and sell a $5,000 watch, but you're not going to have a whole lot of buyers that are looking at that price point. Buyers are looking at that median price point for watches in their market. The same thing with houses. If the 
typical renovated house in your market sells for $200,000, your house at the end of the day should probably sell for about $200,000. If you're going to over-improve that house thinking that you're going to get two hundred and dollars or $300,000 in a neighborhood where all the other houses are getting $200,000, you're probably going to be disappointed for a couple of reasons. One, you're not going to find a lot of buyers. Buyers don't want to buy a $250,000 house in a $200,000 neighborhood. People don't like to have the nicest house in the neighborhood. And number two, even if you can get somebody who might say, okay, I'll pay $250,000 for that house, it's going to be difficult to get an appraiser or a bank to give you a loan for $250,000 in a neighborhood where the houses are worth $200,000 because that's not good collateral for the lender. So what I tell people, first of all, is know your competition. Know what the average housing price in your market is, and that should be what you're targeting. You also don't want to target too far below market value. Because people don't like to buy houses that are too far below market value because they know that when they sell, they want to be able to sell at market value. If you're selling too far below market value, people are wondering what's wrong with the house. Why is this house $20,000 and every other house out there? Maybe it's because you're altruistic and you just want to give somebody a really great deal, but most people don't believe that. So typically, you want to target the median house price in your area. Now, you want to be able to do that, but you want your house to be a little bit better than the competition. So if your competition has, let's say, granite countertops and laminate hardwood flooring and decent light fixtures, you want your house to have granite countertops and laminate hardwood flooring and decent light fixtures. Maybe you do a couple upgrades. Maybe instead of laminate hardwood, you use real hardwood. Maybe you do a nice lighting package so, so that your, your light fixtures are a little bit nicer. Maybe you do what a lot of people refer to as a sizzle feature. So for example, you put like a really, really nice upgraded shower head, or you put in a really nice kitchen range and vent fan. You do something that makes the house stand out, but 90% of your house should be similar to all the other houses or all the other renovated houses in your neighborhood for a couple of reasons. One, again, you don't want to over-improve. Two, if you're making it much nicer, you're probably giving up a whole lot of profit. Even if you can sell it for that, that same price point, that medium price point, if you're putting in an extra $20,000, you don't need to because to sell at the medium price point, you just need to be as good as the competition. So you're giving up $20,000 in profit potentially. And next, people typically buy in a neighborhood because they like the other houses in, in the neighborhood. And if your house is substantially different, even if it's nicer, if it's substantially different, you're going to potentially lose some buyers. So what I typically recommend is go walk through some other houses. Hopefully, there are other houses that, that have been rehabbed and are still in the market, haven't been sold, that your real estate agent can get you into. Go walk through those houses, see what the investor or the homeowner did when they renovated that house, and target your house at about the same price point and about the same level of repair with one or two upgrades that make your house stand out. What are some of the most common mistakes that you see new flippers make, and how should they avoid those mistakes? One is is over-improving. So like I just said, they'll go in and they'll say, okay, everybody has carpet, but I really need the Italian tile. Or everybody has laminate countertops, but I really need the quartz countertops. I need the $8,000 kitchen appliance package because I want this to be a gourmet kitchen when none of the other houses are. So again, even if you can get your price, even if you can easily get a buyer, you're probably just giving up money there. Another big mistake that I see where a lot of investors will go in. And when I say under-improve, there's a couple of ways to under-improve. One, they can use inferior materials. So they can use materials that are lower grade than the competition. But the bigger issue that I see is a lot of investors will go in with subpar contractors. 
So maybe you're putting in the same countertops, the same flooring, the same windows, the same appliances, the same cabinets. Maybe your house looks exactly the same as your competition. But if you're using subpar contractors, that's going to come up in an inspection. And a smart home buyer, a smart real estate agent, a smart inspector, a smart appraiser is going to see that there are quality issues and they're going to point that out to the homeowner. And even if you're using the same exact materials, subpar contractors to save money can really cost you a lot of money in the end. So that's the next thing I see. Next, people that try and sell their houses without listing them on the MLS. So I used to say people that try and sell their houses without a real estate agent. These days, you don't necessarily need a real estate agent, but you want to sell your house. You want your house to be listed on the MLS. And there are ways to do that without a real estate agent. There are what are called flat fee listings, listing services where you basically put your house for a few hundred dollars or a thousand dollars on the MLS without having a real estate agent. But for those people who think that they can sell their house FSBO, so for sale by owner, putting it on Craigslist or doing other things other than putting it on the MLS, again, I'd say you're probably diluting a large percentage. I don't know the exact number, but a very large percentage of buyers these days are still coming through the MLS, people that have real estate agents. And the number of people that I see that don't sell on the MLS because they don't want to give away 2 or 3% or even 5 or 6% if they have their own agent, they want to save that money because they're, they're not getting as large a buyer pool. That's another one that I see people, another mistake I see people make all the time. Here's another one. This one, I just talked to somebody, I saw somebody the other day that did this. So this is top of mind for me. When you're flipping a house, unless you're flipping a $5 million house or a $50 million house or a house where you're going to have one or two or three buyers in the world, you typically, when you're flipping a house, you want to keep your finishes as neutral as possible. You don't want to do something that's taste-specific, that's too custom, that's going to reduce your buyer pool. The reason why house flippers are successful is because they have the greatest number of potential buyers to buy their end product. And if you go in and you make a house too custom, you do fancy wall colors, or you do some type of fancy flooring, or you do these rare cabinets that nobody ever sees, you're basically shutting out a large percentage of your buyers that don't have that fashion sense, that don't come in and say, oh my God, those are those Italian floors that Elton John has in his house. Most people don't have that. What they want to see is, no, every place else has hardwoods that are brown. I want to see brown hardwoods. And every other place has standard quartz countertops. I want to see standard quartz countertops. Every other place is painted beige or brown or some neutral gray. I want a house that's beige or brown or neutral gray. And they can't see past that neutrality. So don't try and get fancy. We learned this lesson. My wife, when we first started out, my wife would literally spend hours and hours and hours in Home Depot picking out custom lighting packages and custom faucet packages and custom color schemes for every single one of our houses. We were selling $100,000 houses and our buyers didn't want custom. And even if they liked custom, we were spending too much money and we were wasting so much time trying to customize each of these houses that we were losing time. And again, time is money. So keep things neutral. Do the same thing in every house. Doing the same thing in every house means you can buy things in quantity. We buy our paint in hundreds of gallons at a time because we use the same paint in every house. So we might as well get quantity discounts. We do the same thing with our appliances. We do the same thing with our flooring. We do the same thing with our cabinets and countertops. We do the same thing with everything. Our contractors never have to wonder, what color am I supposed to paint this house? I once walked into one of my houses where the trim was painted purple. And 
what happened was my wife just wrote down a Sherwin-Williams number incorrectly. She transcribed a couple numbers. My contractors, for some reason, never questioned why we might have suggested purple trim. So they went out and bought this light purple trim to repaint it. And these days, it's we use the same color paint in every house. We use the same color trim, same color ceiling paint. And that way, our contractors never have to wonder, am I doing this right? Did they make a mistake on this? They can buy things in bulk. So I always recommend do things, be as neutral as possible, and just replicate your finishes in every house. Whether it's the neutrality or just over-improving a house, specifically for new investors, do you think that comes from people trying to build houses that they want themselves? I can't speak for everybody. I know for my wife, it was that she loves design. And she just enjoyed doing it. And it was so hard for me to say to her, no, we're going to use the same color in every house. And you're not going to go pick those fancy light fixtures. And you're not going to spend 20 hours shopping for every house. So some people, I think it, it may just come down to they enjoy doing it. They're designers and they want to do it. I think for other people, they feel like they have to do it. They feel like every house has to be different and unique. But what you don't realize is if you have a good product, a buyer is going to walk into one of your houses and and buy it. They're not going to look at five of your houses. So they don't care that every one of your houses is different because none of your buyers are going to see more than one of your houses. There's actually a benefit. I mean, some of the crazy benefits that we've seen by doing the same finishes in every house is there have been houses where our staging company, my wife would stage a lot of houses. and, And so we had a staging company. And there were times when our movers weren't available to stage a house before we put it on the market. But we always wanted really good pictures on the MLS. We could literally take pictures from previous houses that we had staged, and we could put those on the MLS. And if we picked the right pictures, people would walk into the house and not realize that they were pictures of a different house because the carpet was the same color, the walls were the same color, we used the same staging furniture, we used the same light fixtures, the same plumbing fixtures. And so we could literally use pictures from other houses and people wouldn't know they weren't from that house. And secondarily, we used to have agents, not so much anymore because again, there's a ton of competition, but back in 2008 to 12 or 13, when literally we were the only house flipper in, in our county that was doing more than one or two a year, we'd have agents that knew our product. They knew what our houses would look like. And so they would call us and say, I have a buyer for you. And it wasn't, I have somebody that wants to come look at your house. It was literally, I have a buyer for you. They've seen one of your houses before. They didn't get it. They know what your houses look like. They like that neighborhood. They're going to buy your house because every one of our houses looked the same. So we didn't have to walk them through and make them let, let them decide if they liked it or not because it was exactly the same as another one they might have seen. So, so why do people do this? I think a lot of people do it because they don't realize they don't have to. And again, I think a lot of it is, is TV. I mean, you look at HGTV and none of the house flippers on those shows, you see them all going out and buying custom materials because they're on sale or they're buying something custom because it's, I have to do this latest fashion trend in house design. You never see them just using all neutral finishes and people think, well, that's what they're doing on TV. So I should be doing the same thing. It's not the case. Even if you had used the exact same everything for every single one of your flips, and you've done a lot of flips, I mean, over 400 flips, that's a lot. That's still small in terms of the number of houses that are in a city, right? I mean, you're talking the suburbs of Baltimore. Even if every single one of those was in Baltimore, that's still tiny. Right. Nobody's going to see multiple of our houses anymore. There was a time when they would, because again, we were like the only one doing renovated houses in our county back in 2008, 9, 10, when all the other, nobody else was selling anything. But these days, I mean, there are hundreds or thousands of houses. And even if they did walk into three of our houses, they wouldn't make that connection that they were all the same finishes. 
And even if they did, it's you're keeping it neutral, which should exactly. fit to a lot of people. And then they can just pick on, oh, this has two bedrooms, but there's three bedrooms or four. This is in the neighborhood we want or the backyard that we want or whatever it may be. Exactly. I know early on, one of my my business partner and I would walk into properties and he'd always want to fix things the way that he'd want to live in it. You know, He's always lived in nice houses, so he'd always want to over-renovate just because... And I have to remind him, this is going to be a rental, maybe not in the perfect part of town. So we don't necessarily need to have all of the best materials in here. Exactly. And and I'll tell you, when you're doing a rental, it's actually looking for not just neutral, but you want to fortify your properties. So you might have nice carpet that you use or nice hardwood, but in a rental, I'd rather have a lot of tile because it's more sturdy. I'm going to spend more for granite versus laminate countertops, even if laminate's more common in that area, because I know the granite's going to last for 10 years. I'm not going to have to replace it every two years. Good rule of thumb with rentals, as few moving parts as possible. Don't have fans if you don't need fans. Don't have garbage disposals if you don't need garbage disposals, because anything that moves in a rental is going to break. So as few moving parts as possible. Yeah, it's, it's a whole different world. It's funny you say that. My dad's a mechanic and he gives me the same advice when buying cars, when it comes yep. to all-wheel drive cars or I ride four-wheelers, dirt bikes, things like that. Same thing with that. If you want to buy four-wheel drive, it's just twice as many moving parts that you're going to have to fix. Exactly. So as we near the end of the show, I have two questions that I want to wrap up with. And the first one is, what is a common piece of real estate investing advice that you often hear given that you think is potentially misleading or just incorrect? And how would you make that true? That's a really, really good question. So a lot of people think that to be a good real estate investor, you have to know what people affectionately refer to as sticks and bricks. You've got to understand the contracting piece of it. You have to know how houses are built. You have to know how contractors work and how to estimate and how to schedule. And I have built my entire real estate career on knowing as little of that as possible. Obviously, I know a lot of it. I've written books on the topic, but there are plenty of people out there that know so much more about construction and scheduling and budgeting and and contracting than I do. And the reason I think I've been successful in this business is because I don't focus on those things. I focus on bringing in people and surrounding myself with people who are really good at that. I focus on having great project managers and great contractors and a great general contractor. And so for anybody out there who thinks I can't be good at real estate because I never done contracting, literally my wife jokes that when we got married and bought our first property, I didn't know how to change a light bulb. I was an electrical engineer that didn't know how to change a light bulb, practically didn't know how to change a light bulb. It's 12 years later and I still barely know how to change a light bulb. But I run my business like a business and I focus on bringing in smart people that know how to do those things. And so I don't need to. So so the biggest misconception is you have to be a good contractor to be a, a good real estate investor. And if anything, I like to think that being a good contractor is a hindrance because then you try and do too much yourself. You don't step out of the day-to-day role and focus on building the business. And the best real estate investors are the ones that don't spend their time at the houses. They spend their time looking for deals and looking for the money to buy those deals. And so, so don't think you have to know contracting and real estate. You just need to know how to run a business. Yeah, I think that's definitely a very good misconception to to point out because I had that exact same misconception. I mean, I'm an accountant, you know, finance person by trade. So, I mean, I can barely swing a hammer. So, I didn't think I could become an, a real estate investor. I never thought I was going to be able to because I'm probably one of the least handy people you'll ever meet. 
And the final question to wrap up the show is, what has been the biggest thing that you've learned from interviewing some of the best minds in business on your podcast? Oh, I've learned so much. We've gotten to interview some amazing people. People know, like, it's funny, people know the big names. We've interviewed Barbara Corcoran and Jay Papazan, who is Gary Keller's partner and wrote The One Thing. Uh, Mike Michalowicz, who is like a best selling author. He, he wrote a book called Profit First, which was like one of my favorite books ever. But the nice thing is, we've also interviewed a lot of people nobody has ever heard of. And these are the people that are really inspiring. These are the people that make you realize that doesn't matter if you don't have a college education, doesn't matter if you don't have a business background, if you don't have an MBA, if you've never started a business before. These are the people that make you realize that anybody can be successful at business if you follow the process, you work hard, you surround yourself with smart people, and you focus on making good decisions. There have been so many people on on the show that they're the first to say, I don't know how I got successful. I shouldn't have gotten successful, and yet they did. And, and so it's just a great testament to the fact that anybody can be a successful business person. And especially, we're talking about real estate here. Real estate is a business. And people that focus on real estate as a business as opposed to a hobby, as opposed to being a contractor and going in and doing the work yourself, those who focus on real estate as a business are the most successful business people. And so I just, that's just the best thing about doing the business podcast. It's just talking to everyday people like you and me and, and other just small business owners that have been successful despite the odds. Jay, thanks so much for your time. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we'll probably have to have you back multiple times to cover everything that I want to cover. And I'm already looking forward to that. Coming back anytime you want. Awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So for those who have enjoyed this episode and want to connect with you further, where should they go? So I'm going to do a little plug again for the, uh, for the podcast because that's my baby and my wife's baby. My, my wife and I are hosts of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. So I hope people will tune in. For anybody that wants to connect with me, my website is jscott.com, just like my name. I am on Facebook, Instagram, jscott underscore one, two, three, flip. And if anybody wants to reach out to me, they can catch me at my email, which is the letter j at jscott.com. I'll be sure to put links to all the resources that Jay and I have talked about throughout the show, as well as everything he just mentioned so that you can go connect with him. I'll also put links to his books in the show notes. So if you guys want to go check those out as well, you can definitely do that. Jay, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Robert. I really appreciate it. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.